St. Louis Alderwoman Megan Green has been in three elections for her current job since 2014, and now she's embarking on another campaign to be the president of the St. Louis Board of Aldermen. Green joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to break down her campaign platform, so let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis today is... Rachel Lippman, also a reporter at St. Louis Public Radio. And joining us for the third time, a candidate for... The St. Louis Board of Aldermen President. Megan Aaliyah Green, 15th Ward Alderwoman. Thank you very much. This is part of our unofficial series of interviewing the, the three major candidates. I guess we candidates. could kind of call it a series. It's a concerted <laughs> effort to get all three of the main candidates onto the show. Yeah, we think this race is somewhat important. So well, we're, we're, we're having you all on. it's very important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why did you decide to run for this? This has to be like your fourth or fifth race in the last four four years, five years? Like, uh, you've been running for, you're running so much, your feet must be uh, ready to come uh, fall off. You know, luckily, I ran marathons before I ran for office, so I have a lot of stamina for this. Um, But yes, I ran uh, three times in two and a half years for what was normally a four-year term, uh, because I ran initially in a special election. And now I'm running for president of the Board of Aldermen, basically because I feel like the status quo in our city is not working. And our city, in order to move forward, desperately needs some different leadership at the top of the board. What would you, I mean, we're going to get into issues in a little bit. But the Board of Aldermen president is responsible for presiding over the Board of Aldermen, appointing a lot of the committees. And because that they can vote and and they're the tie. They're the tiebreaker essentially. They're they're built in as the tiebreaker for a twenty-eight member board of aldermen. But but yes. you know we we've seen like for example the incumbent board of aldermen president Lewis Reed sponsor legislation and push Correct. through a particular agenda. So yes. even though there are set duties as well as serving on the board of estimate and apportionment, it does have a bit of an open-ended focus to where you can do more than just what I just mentioned. So what would you want to do? beyond to just appoint a bunch of people to committees and and preside over the Board of Aldermen? Well, you know, I think that the number one thing is is setting a legislative agenda um, and setting an an agenda that then you assign people to committees and bills to committees so that you can make that agenda move. You know, we are over four years past Ferguson. We are, you know, over three years past the Ferguson Commission report and, and that being uh, you know, revealed to the public with it, which really is our marching orders for what we should be doing in city government. Um, yet we don't see that centered as our priorities. What we see continually centered is huge development projects that um, often are are giving these huge tax incentives to big political donors. And the emphasis is not going on to everyday people and how we redevelop our city in a way that really benefits everyone who's in our city. 
it, the, the Board of Aldermen president is interesting in that it is not elected by the members of the Board of Aldermen. It's Correct. a separate sort of citywide office. And I know you're talking about sort of setting a legislative priority, but this would be your legislative priority. How do you deal with that might not be the legislative priority of, you know, everyone within the, the board who you're going to be assigning to these committees, et cetera? So I, I think, you know, the first thing is sitting down with everyone who is a board member and figuring out, you know, we have all of these calls to action through the Ferguson Commission report, through uh, the First Sake of All report, the uh, Dismantling the Divide report. I mean, we have a, a ton of kind of things that we know that we need to do and change. And so I think the first part has to be sitting down with each individual alderman to see which one of these things are you interested and committed to working on. And then let's make committee assignments based upon that um, and prioritize what we're going to do as a collective body each year. Um, you know, right now, committees are assigned in a way to very much keep the status quo in place. And I think that with some different uh, assignments, we can have a very different agenda that moves through the board. I think I have to ask this question because I know that a lot of white politicians can embrace the Ferguson Commission report and want to push for policies that, you know, help people of color deal with police and deal with health care and education. But you're running against two African-American candidates. And the question may be why you as a white political figure is better situated to accomplish those goals than either Senator Jamil Nasheed or Board of Aldermen President Louis Reed. I feel like that's going to come up, so I want it you does. to respond to that. I, I mean, it, it absolutely does. And I would say that, you know, racial justice work is a full contact sport. It requires all of us. And if we're actually going to change what happens in our city, if we're going to change our trajectory, it means that all people need to be on board working toward racial justice at all times, regardless of our skin color. And those of us who do carry privilege like I do um, have to be willing to use that privilege in ways that forwards racial justice. That means spending time going into white spaces that I do quite often uh, to challenge white folks on how we uphold white supremacy and challenging a lot of those systems. Um, because at the end of the day, we have to have South St. Louis um, and folks that look like me also on board uh, to be pushing for changes in our community if we're collectively going to see the changes that we need to see. Ferguson Report also focuses a lot of things on state and federal governments. It's not all things that can be accomplished at Correct. the city. What's in the report, first of all, that you're seeing that you know can be accomplished city level? And then how do you use the position to get the change state and federally as well, given that it's you know a very Republican General Assembly mm -hmm. and a divided government in a red uh, nationally and Missouri is a pretty red state. I mean, I think we have to, you know, we can start at our housing policy, um, you know, requiring inclusionary zoning as we are building all of this uh, luxury housing, mostly in the central corridor. We need to have those inclusionary zoning policies to ensure that uh, we are building uh, affordable housing, that we're not displacing folks from communities, that people who have lived in communities for a long time are benefiting from the new development that is happening there. And I mean, in a lot of ways, the Board of Aldermen is a real estate development board. The The vast majority of uh, bills that come through the board have to do with uh, building, whether it's tax incentives or zonings or alley vacations or um, things related to development. And so um, we know that St. Louis is a city that um, that really 
what was the designers of a lot of discriminatory housing policy and uh, zoning policy. And we have the ability at the Board of Aldermen to work to undo a lot of that. I want to talk about incentives because that's been a central focus of not only your campaign, but you know, you've been talking about this on the board for a long time. And I think I've asked you a variation of this question before. But, you know, St. Louis City is not in a vacuum. It's competing for potentially big development, not only against other cities, but also St. Louis County and St. Charles County and to some extent Jefferson County. And you can make an argument that if you're a large business, it's easier for you to go into the county, find some green space and build a building than to take an old building, rehab it, and then also with the ulterior issues that it may be in an area that has crime or, or litter or whatever. Um, Especially you, with the, some of the tax credits, the state level tax credits in question now. Why are incentives a, a not so good thing in the city when it could be the difference between a big economic development opportunity landing in the city versus landing in St. Charles? So first off, I'm going to say that I've never taken a position of being against all incentives. And and I think that those of us who are skeptical or ask questions mm-hmm. about these things are also often pegged as just being opposed when there's a lot more nuance. Right. Um, I would say the second thing is we are we have $8 billion of in-progress or planned development occurring in our city right now. That is unprecedented levels of development. And so people want to build here. They want to be here. And we are the core of the region. And and so knowing that we have that much development happening in our city, we have to make sure that we're doing it in a way that is responsible, that is going to incentivize development in areas of our city that need it, that is not going to subsidize development in areas of our city that is already stable so that we have the money that we need to pick up trash to you know fund vital city services and uh, to make sure that we have high quality schools and uh, and I think at some point in time we also have to be willing to call people's bluff um, to say okay if you really think you're going to to go out to the county you know do it but I think at the end of the day you know we are the city center. We are or we are the center of the region, and people want to be here, and we're seeing that by the levels of investment that's happening in our city right now. Is there any practical way you would try to actually accomplish what you're, you're saying? Would you re- refer, like, an incentive plan to a committee that's automatically going to kill it? Like, how would you, what would you, you do as a Board of Aldermen president well, to actually so, do I mean, they have a guideline, yeah. the guidelines. It's a, you right. know, non-binding <laughs> resolution. Right. Yeah. But and I, you and know. I think that's a, a good point. I mean, there's a couple things that have to happen. First, um, you know, before we even tackle incentives, we need a citywide plan for development. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needs to be something that's neighborhood driven, that is, um, you know, driven by people that live in the city who are saying, hey, you know, this is what we envision for our community. We don't have a grocery store here. This is a food desert. And so we need to figure out how we incentivize the development of, you know, a grocery store in this area. And we need that citywide plan. Once we have that citywide plan for what development looks like, then we can start to assign, okay, this is the level of incentive that you can qualify for for each type of development throughout each area of the city. And then it needs to be codified. Because like you said, with a non-binding resolution, there's nothing that holds us accountable to that. But if we actually codify guidelines, then any time we were to not follow that, we would actually have to write a carve out in a bill, which holds us a lot more accountable and makes it a lot more transparent than a resolution that um, is difficult for the public to to tell whether we're actually abiding by or not. 
Um, on kind of a side note of this, when Alderman Kennedy was on the podcast with, with Jason and I, he was talking about sort of the community capability to, you know, know and study and um, advocate for the needs. And I'm wondering, like, how if there is a role that you see you would play as a citywide elected official to get those, you know, communities north, you know, farther north of Del Mar in, involved in that process to, you know, be able to articulate and advocate and address the, you know, we don't have a grocery store in there. We intuitively know this, I think. Yes. But, you know, how do you get them um, empowered to to be a part of that process? So it isn't just the central corridor, right. your ward, my eighth ward that are right. already civically active. So I will say, you know, one of, one of the things that I, I think needs to happen um, that I do in the 15th ward right now is participatory budgeting. So participatory budgeting is basically where uh, residents are empowered to determine how our ward capital tax money is spent. And by going through that process in the 15th ward, we have dramatically increased voter turnout. We have dramatically increased uh, citizen engagement because people vote for, you know, for example, LED lights to go in and then they see LED lights go in and they say, hey, I actually have some trust now that government's going to do what it uh, says it, it is going to do. I think that process needs to be done citywide um, in every ward because it is a it is a foundational process to start to organize communities. And then once you have kind of that foundational process in place, we've taken that same process in the 15th ward to transfer it over to development, um, to work toward uh, community benefit agreements and things that center communities in a lot of these decisions. Um, those processes need to be taken citywide, and there's a lot of great models for how to, how that happens. Um, a person that I look to that I admire a lot in another city is Mayor Chokwe Lamamba in Jackson, Mississippi, who does these people's assemblies. And it's a way to, you know, have the community come and essentially set the agenda for what legislators should be working on. And to me, that's uh, what we need to be going toward rather than uh, kind of the current model of, of calling some town halls every now and then, talking at people rather than actually listening. Sometimes you get lights, sometimes you get concrete balls, you know, yes. you, can weigh, you can weigh what it is that you want. I feel like before we talk about more issues, we have to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is that... Um, this position that you're running for may not functionally exist over the next few years. Now, I want to make clear to our listeners, we're recording this before Better Together is officially unveiling their plan, which should be on January 28th. So we're not going to be asking uh, Alderwoman Green to respond to a plan that she doesn't know about. But I do think that... There's, and there's enough details out there to make it clear that the city of St. Louis government structure, as it's known as this position exists in, would not exist any longer. Basically, That's never been right. denied. Basically. Right. As opposed to the city joining as a municipality where you could still have a mayor, board of aldermen, president, comptroller, but that's not what's being proposed. I think the central question, though, to ask all three of the major candidates, though, is before we even talk about the plan, who should be voting on it? Mm -hmm. Because the Better Together proponents are saying there are things in this plan that would require changes to the Constitution, and therefore that requires a statewide vote. A lot of people on all sides of the political spectrum, I'm talking about very liberal Democrats and very conservative conservatives, although that's a redundant, 
<laughs> believe that this should be a local yeah. city and county vote. So I'd be interested in your perspective on that. I mean, that. I definitely believe that the people who are impacted by it need to be the people that are deciding this. And so it really should be St. Louis City and St. Louis County residents who are weighing in on it, um, as we're the ones that will be impacted by this the most. I think by taking it to a statewide vote, um, you know, Rexingfield and Better Together are uh, skipping a lot of steps. Uh, community engagement, real community engagement and creating community buy-in is a hard process. And and what I think is happening by going statewide, they're trying to jump over doing that real community engagement um, process to ensure that it is something that people in the region uh, want and that they trust. And I think that the more that this is pushed at a statewide level rather than a local level, it is going to fracture a lot of trust in the region. And I don't think that we will see, even if it does pass, I don't think it'll be a, a beneficial for the region because of that. I think that there are t uh, several practical ways, if you don't agree with the statewide vote, to combat it. There's a board of freeholders process that the Muni League is is actually going to try to pursue, and they may you need get... to start a drinking game on some of these podcasts. Every <laughs> yeah. time you say that, just take a and shot. And it's actually, and, and I don't want to get into super gory detail. It's technically called the board of electors because uh, the requirement that a board of freeholder member have property was struck down as unconstitutional. But I mean, this is the level of wonk you get on public. <laughs> public trust speakings. me, it, it makes my head hurt. <laughs> I think they can get the signatures to basically yeah. force the mayor and the county executive to appoint board members. But I think the issue is since Mayor Krusen and County Executive Stanger are on board with the Better Together effort, they may just appoint people that are going to are, deadlock that, yes. that and nothing happens from that. I think the other option may have to come from the state legislature of possibly attaching a corresponding amendment that says – Better Together's plan doesn't pass unless it passes in the city and the county. Right. So I know that's a jumbled observation rather than a question, but what do you think of those two practical avenues to, to push back against this? I mean, I, I think that, you know, the first one, um, I think you're absolutely right. I said seeing, you know, Mayor Krusen and County Executive Stanger out there kind of pushing the Better Together plan, I think um, – rightfully makes a lot of us skeptical that they would appoint people to any kind of board that would um, slow down this process or look at it in a different way. Um, I'm also not sure that such an amendment would actually work in the General Assembly. Um, we have a lot of animosity toward St. Louis in the the General Assembly, and we've seen, you know, whether it be with minimum wage or or some other issues, a willingness to kind of supersede our local control on issues. And um, and so I don't know if the General Assembly would be willing to actually grant us that kind of amendment. So I guess that you just may have to campaign against the statewide vote, and that may be the best against option the Against the petition, right? Because they would have to petition unless the, the General Assembly puts it on the ballot. They'd have to get the signatures to... It could be like a do not sign right, campaign decline or something. Right, what what yeah. do you think about that idea? I mean, I, I think there's a couple courses of action. There could be a do not sign campaign. There could be, uh, which Rex has done before, is kind of a counter ballot initiative campaign. Mm. Uh, you know, the the municipal league across the state, not just in the St. Louis region, is taking a lot of, um, you know, critical eye at this and, and has a lot of concern um, because of, you know, this setting a precedent for impeding on other local control issues across the state. And so I, I think that um, the city and the county actually probably have some allies in the municipal league and 
other um, municipalities across the state. And we may have to look at doing some kind of counter ballot initiative. Uh, I, you know, I think the other thing uh, to look at is, you know, is there a way to, uh, you know, change the narrative around this? Um, and, and I think that's what we're going to have to figure out as a region is how do we, especially in outstate Missouri, change the narrative so that this isn't seen as uh, maybe something that folks are willing to impose on the city. Before we go to the airport situation, I do want to bring up the other question that I've been asking about, you know, people may look at the St. Louis region and say, there are tons of school districts, there are tons of cities, police departments, fire protection districts, layers of government. And I am understanding that my my understanding is schools and fire protection districts are not going to be in this plan. Correct. But my point for bringing that up is, even if you may not agree with the way Better Together is going about this, you could make an argument that their criticism that St. Louis has too many layers of government is an apt, apt it is. is apt. So how would you yeah. respond to that? that I mean, yeah, that's going to kind it, of be my it question. It definitely like, is. And and so, I mean, what, what we really need is we need a regional entity that is looking at this, whether, you know, maybe it be one of our research institutions um, that has more trust than Rexingfield and Better Together, um, who will actually do the community engagement work, um, not just with the business community, but with with the folks that will be most impacted by any kind of merger, and, uh, and formulate a plan by there. And, and a phased plan. I mean, it. even though we might not go to the school districts right away, when you look at other regions that have merged, they have addressed their school districts. Like Louisville, I believe. I yes. Think, yeah. yeah. They now have United. I mean, there's 80. I'm actually doing my dissertation on this. There's there's 80 districts nationally that have merged uh, St. Lu- uh, merged county and, and city uh, school districts when they went through some kind of consolidation or even absent of some kind of other consolidation um, and did school assignment based upon socioeconomics. And what they found is student achievement went up for all kids of every socioeconomic status. And uh, for low-income kids, they reach grade level a lot higher than simply putting more money into schools that are predominantly low-income. And so even if we're not willing to address the school district issue today in this proposal, I think long-term it is something that we need to be looking at as a region. So on any kind of... um plan consolidation you know whatever you end up calling this whether it is better together or an alternate one comes out what would be sort of the overall things you would be evaluating the plan based on like not whether you oppose better whatever better together structure is or oppose or support whatever board of freeholders might come up with how what would be sort of the what you would evaluate any plan through it has to center historically marginalized communities, and it has to work to undo the vestiges of restricted deep covenants, of redlining, of all these things that the St. Louis region pioneered. And um, if we just replace a, a you know fractured government now with a more streamlined government that doesn't actually address those issues, then I'm not sure that we're any better off than we are today. And I think that's where we have to start. And whatever gets us to that is the plan that we need to uh, forward. Let's talk about something that you can potentially control as Board of Aldermen President, and that's the airport, quote unquote, privatization situation. And basically what is being studied right now 
is turning over the management of Lambert St. Louis Airport to a private entity, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, it's a pretty controversial process, to say the least. The fact that the former mayor basically jump-started this process, and I'm talking about Mayor Francis Slay, mm -hmm. and is now basically what, lobbying for a particular firm yeah. to yeah. get He's that a business? Yeah, he's a lobbyist for one of the firms that is either currently involved in the process or they think will likely submit an RFQ yes, to, to, bid be, on to bid on yeah. the, to be qualified to bid on the, yeah. the, the point is that seems at best problematic. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. This, whole, this whole process <laughs> has been at best problematic from the beginning. So I want to hear your take on the, on not only the question of whether city residents should vote on it, but the, the prospect of, of airport privatization. What, what's your opinion on both of those things? I mean, I, I think that residents should definitely vote on it. I think that um, this has huge implications, not just on St. Louis City residents, but on the entire region. I mean, we know privatization as a concept rarely works out in the public interest. Um, it is a way to increase profits to shareholders, to, um, to big money interest, often on the backs of consumers and on the backs of workers. And um, and I and so I'm skeptical of any privatization process, whether it be for the airport or water or trash, um, because we have ample data to point to that that this is what happens when uh, public assets are privatized. I you know the the president of the board may very well end up being the swing vote on ENA as to whether this actually gets privatized. And I'm the only person in this race who has signed the pledge by STL not for sale that I will vote no on privatization. And I'm also the only person in this race who has not taken a dime of money from Rex Singfield or any of his uh, PACs that are pushing for privatization. Is, is it the, is the objection to the process by which this happened, I know there was a lot of discussion at the Board of Aldermen that the study shouldn't be which firm would privatize it the best. The study needed to be whether privatization should be the option, or is it an op opposition to the idea of privatization as a whole? Because I think those are two kind of distinct things. They are, and I think it's both. Um, I, I am going to always be skeptical of any privatization just as a concept because there's so much information that shows that um, taking something that's a public asset and turning it over to making it a profit-driven asset typically does not work out for consumers and does not work out for, for workers, does not work out for taxpayers. Uh, and quite frankly, St. Louis is not the first to do anything and to be the first in the country to do uh, airport privatization. I'm not sure that that's what we want to put our you know, mark on. Um, but on the other side of this, this process from day one has been flawed. It's been wrought with conflicts of interest. It's been um, not transparent. The quote-unquote polling that's happening uh, or community engagement from uh, Grow Missouri is not, uh, I would say, would not pass the muster of, uh, of, you know, research methods that would be required to even, you know, complete my PhD. Uh, and so, you know, for all those reasons, I think that this is not a good process. I will also add that, you know, I do think that it's worth studying how we optimize the airport. Um, 
And we can do that through looking at how we can optimize it as a public asset and perhaps even a regional asset. You know, is there a way to bring St. Louis County in in some kind of ownership of the airport and really make this a regional asset and not just a city asset? Um, and does that start to move us more toward uh, thinking about ourselves as a region? Those are the things that need to be explored that unfortunately were taken off the table from day one. I want to I ask a devil's advocate question on the voting or the public vote aspect. Um, and it kind of comes down to the way the Board of Aldermen is structured. So you mentioned that pledge. There have been a number of white alder people who have, saw, who have said, we're going to vote no on airport privatization mm-hmm. no matter what. The Board of Aldermen has a majority of white aldermen, but it has a fairly large black caucus. Mm-hmm. And I have not talked to members of the black caucus about this, but this has been brought up as a reason why the black caucus may be opposed to a, a public vote. If there are enough white alder people that are on record saying they're going to vote no under any circumstances, and then the black caucus basically holds all the leverage to basically direct where the money from this plan goes then there may be more of an incentive not to have a public vote so the Black Caucus can basically say, we're not going to vote for this unless the proceeds from this all go to the north side or all the streets get paved there or we tear down all vacant buildings. So I want you to respond to that part because that could be a reason why people like Alderman John Collins Muhammad or Alderwoman Middlebrook voted against that, although I know Collins Muhammad said it was revenge for not voting on uh, ward reduction. But I, I, I think Muhammad reversal is also on Lewis Reed's payroll That's at fair. the moment. That's fair so, to say. Yeah. But I do want you to respond to that because I do think that when you think about that logically, it actually is a pretty good strategy and it may make sense of why people are not on board with a public vote. Well, they, ha- did, they did take at least one vote on ward reduction. They haven't taken the, the last vote on word reduction. It is reversal been, of word reduction. I right. It, it actually, the it, bill it, got the pulled. Cable. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, the bill got pulled. Okay. But um, my, I don't remember everybody who has signed the pledge um, at the moment, but I know that there has been African-American older persons who have uh, signed on the anti-privatization pledge. Uh, you know, I, Obviously, there's going to be some, you know, different dynamics through different coalitions on the board when it comes to this. Um, I think history tells us, though, that as many times as we as there has been promises made that we do these silver bullet projects and all this money is going to go to the north side. I don't think we can point to an example where that has actually happened. And um, what this will do if it goes through is take away a revenue stream that we have um, that currently provides, you know, seven million dollars more and growing every year to the city. And uh, and we also know that when the city ends up being starved for cash, it's it's not the central corridor that hurts. Um, It's North City that routinely gets hurt in this. And and so I think that we need to be looking out. Um, for that. And, um, and I think we need to be pushing, um, we need to not be pushing uh, some kind of privatization that is going to hurt the long-term financial position of the city. I want to talk about education because I think that the Board of Aldermen President actually has a role in this issue. For now. For now. As long as the Special Administrative Board exists, <laughs> the office holder of the Board of Aldermen President, for that matter, appoints a member to that board. But I also think that citywide officials have the bully pulpit to advocate for changes to SLPS, even if they're not directly involved. From talking with you in the green room, I think that some of your advocacy has a direct link 
to education spending, especially when you're talking about incentives. So I want to use this as a jumping off point to what you would do as Board of Aldermen President to make SLPS the best it can be, because I think that that is a make or break decision for a lot right. of people to whether stay in the city or move to the right. county. I mean, I, I think the first thing we have to do is stop pretending like our actions at City Hall don't impact the schools. I mean, oftentimes what we hear at in City Hall is that, oh, well, we don't really have control over the city schools, so it's not really our responsibility. Uh, I think that we should be creating a committee at the Board of Aldermen that focuses on education um, from birth through college um, to figure out how the city can be a better partner. Uh, and then going back to needing a citywide plan for development and a citywide plan for incentive use that is codified. Uh, 60% of tax revenue, of property tax revenue goes to the public schools. So every time we're issuing a 10-year tax abatement to build a $700,000 townhome, um, that's money that our schools are losing out on. And because uh, I think most of us would agree that if you can pay $700,000 for a townhome, you can probably afford to pay your taxes on that townhome. And uh, and that's what we need to be be working toward to make sure that our schools really do have the money that they need um, to hire special ed teachers to, uh, which I know is an issue, you know, near and dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. And um, and having a high quality education so folks will stay in the city. And that was, and this is a question I'm asking all the candidates. And as you kind of alluded to, I moved to the county because I'm taking advantage of the special school district of St. Mm -hmm. Louis County. But and this process is not automatic. It would require legislative action. It would require a citywide vote. But do you think that SLPS should join the special school district? And I definitely so, do. I definitely do. I think um, I think that the that SLPS does not have the the resources that it needs currently to be providing good special education services for all of the kids who really need those services. Um, they don't have the the I think the services that they need to be able to test everyone, and then once they they do test, uh, ensuring that everybody's individual needs are met. And um, we know that special school district provides a very great service. And if we can bring that into the city again, that starts to work toward more regionalism, and it also uh, will be beneficial to the kids who live in our city right now. Wanted to um, kind of shift more towards kind of a conversation about the politics of this race. You mentioned that you are not going to take money from, or I think you have pledged not to take money from kind of the corporate donors, relying a lot on corporate small packs. money, corporate packs. Okay, yeah. um, relying a lot on then the small money. Um, how, do you think that that it's, it's going to put you at a disadvantage? I think fundraising dollars show that. And the question is like, what do you? How do you overcome? that financial disadvantage it's not obviously as much to you know run citywide as it is elsewhere but you still have to do mailers tv if you want to and you've got people with 250 300 dollars in their bank account that you're going up against so i'll say first off that corporations don't vote people do and any person that gives you three dollars five dollars ten dollars um is going to go out and vote for you and we're at the point in this campaign where we've had over 1100 uh, donations, 66% uh, of them from people who actually live in the city, individuals who live in the city. Um, and and every time somebody does that, they're going to come out and vote for you. We have uh, a people-powered campaign. We have a great door-knocking operation, uh, people who are on the phones, who are um, you know, doing that grassroots organizing, which I, I think is, you know, when we look at people 
like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, who was outspent substantially in in her race, um, but used a lot of those grassroots tactics. Uh, that's how candidates are winning. And especially if you have a message that resonates. People in this city are fed up with the status quo. They're, they're fed up with um, not having their trash picked up. They're fed up with calling 911 and waiting three hours for uh, an officer to show up. They're, you know, fed up with feeling like they can't send their kids to the public schools. And uh, and I think we're at a, a breaking point as a city where we have to have leadership that's willing to do some fundamentally different things. You're, you're not the first St. Louis-based candidate to basically say, I'm not taking corporate PACs. Cori Bush did the same thing against Lacey Clay. Yep. And if you look at the results, Lacey Clay won by over 20 percentage points, including winning the North side by upwards of 50 and 60 percent. So what I'm getting at here is I understand there are a lot of very politically active people that care about not taking PAC money. But you could look at results like that and be like, well, other ordinary voters don't see this as a big issue. So how are you going to make that resonate to actual voters when it was done last year and it wasn't successful for the person that was advocating for that. So the I will say first that the boundaries of the first congressional district are different than the boundaries of the city of St. Louis. And yes, that, that's true. Um, and that district was actually specifically gerrymandered to protect Clay incumbency. And um, and so I think that 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 needs to be understood and, and centered kind of in that race. Um, I think if we look at the areas of the city where Cori Bush did very well, um, in uh, the area of the city where I represent, in surprisingly southwestern city, mm-hmm. where people would think that that is a very conservative mm-hmm. area, um, yet they're willing to vote for somebody who is pretty front and center in the the protest movement. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge anti-establishment, um, I think, bent to a lot of folks in the city, and um, and we're the only candidate in this race, I think, that can really speak to um, being against the establishment, being willing to buck up against the good old boys network and and really stand on the side of real transformational change. Well, let's talk about the map that we're not without St. Louis County in it. <laughs> um, so this is a really fascinating race between you, Louis Fried, and Jamil and Nasheed. Because I think that each candidate has their various strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty much established that you're going to have a lot of strength in the 15th Ward, the 8th Ward, the 9th Ward, maybe the 14th Ward, maybe even place like, you know. Parts of the 6th. It's like I call them, it's kind of the, the, the park wards. Yes, kind which of is, around which is half of Senator Nasheed's mm-hmm. yes. senatorial district. A- exactly. It's my base. <laughs> exactly. But I could also see both Nasheed and Reed having a lot of pull in North St. Louis, which is predominantly mm-hmm. African-American. Um, And then in southwest St. Louis, which is almost 99 percent white, even though you're the only white candidate, I don't know if you're guaranteed to win that because it's very machine oriented. And oftentimes the committee people and the elected officials, when they go for somebody, those voters turn out pretty strongly for that endorsed candidate. And in this case, I think Reed is probably going to get a lot of that establishment support. Plus, you're assuming it's a lot. It's a public safety heavy ward in terms of police firefighter. We know firefighters are going to go with Reed. They've been, you know, they pushed his 2013 candidacy. And I, no offense, I don't see SLPOA endorsing you. No. <laughs> I, I would not accept the endorsement if they did. Yeah. I don't think I'm going too much out on the limb when yeah. I say that. So but. I guess what, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm asking this to basically all the candidates. Right. The map is pretty much challenging for all three candidates. It is. So I want I want you to explain like what 
your your I guess we tried to ask Nasheed what your strategy right. is, and I she's mean, like, I'm not telling you my you strategy. You don't have to like, tell us exactly how but you're going to win. Ex- but you don't want to give what's away the... like our, our win plan. <laughs> but but right. how do you navigate that, basically? Who, whoever wins this race is going to have to step outside of their traditional uh, base of support and, and build coalitions across uh, groups of people who may not always be on the same side of issues. And I will say that I think that we're the best position to do that because of running on an anti-establishment, anti-corruption agenda, which is something that I think resonates both in North City, South City, the West Side, the East Side. Uh, and, and that is what our you know, data has showed us. Um, I have personally knocked doors in every single ward in this city um, multiple times. I don't think any other candidate can say that they've done that. Um, and when I knocked on folks' doors in each ward, I didn't do it asking for a vote. I did it asking what they needed. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that we often don't have politicians who are willing to do that enough. And once elected, that's something that I'm planning on doing at least annually, um, because there are a lot of folks who can't get down to City Hall, who can't get to neighborhood meetings. But if you show up on their doorstep and you have a 10, 15 minute conversation with them, you start to get a pulse of of what the city actually needs. I want to talk about, you know, I, I think you're associated with the quote unquote progressive wing. I like to call you like the more anti-establishment, anti-status quo. I called you renegades. <laughs> I like renegades better. Somebody was actually insulted by by that, but I mean that. I don't mean that pejoratively. But you look at some of the other the younger, the sort of younger wing of the party. And I mean, in 2017, I mean a lot of people in that faction supported Tashara Jones. And if Mm -hmm. we look at the map, she didn't do that well in North St. Louis, despite having pretty extensive ties there. You look at Proposition P. A lot of the North Side voted for Proposition P. And in the aforementioned Lacey Clay race. Understandably, he has a lot of built-in advantages, but he won most of the North Side wars, again, by large margins. So how do you change that trajectory? Because, again, in a race that's divided like this, black voters could be decisive on choosing the winner. And a lot of people within the political subgroup that you belong to have not had the best electoral success up there. So I'd I'd like you to address that. I mean, part of it is is – like I said, meeting people where they are. I mean, we've had robust canvassing operations that have been going since the weekend after the November election um, in every single ward in the city. And uh, and when we are canvassing, actually, you know, educating folks on issues. When you ask the average person in St. Louis how much money, what percentage of our uh, general operating budget we spend on public safety, most people say maybe 20 to 30 percent. And when you tell folks, you know, what what would you say if I told you it was almost 60 percent? Most people are floored by that. Um, and so, you know, when you're knocking doors, not just knocking, asking, you know, for a vote for me, but also doing that voter education and, and that, you know, perhaps the way that we're doing things isn't working. And while, you know, neighborhoods, certain areas of the city voted for Prop P, um, when you're voting for it, assuming that we have this extremely underfunded public safety system that um, actually we don't have, uh, it starts to change people's mind when there's that voter education done. And so, you know, that's, I think, a lot of what I've done in the 15th Ward is not just vote for this, but but really outline the reasons to vote for something and do that voter education, which uh, I think has sometimes been lacking throughout our city. I wanted to circle back around a little bit to what you were talking about at the beginning in terms of advancing an agenda at the Board of Aldermen. And it's still 
you know, regardless of, of the way you set up the agenda, the bills still have to be signed by the mayor to take effect mm-hmm. unless you can override the veto. And I can't remember if the city's got a pocket veto or if it automatically takes effect. I can never remember. It which automatically it, is. it does automatically the, take yeah. effect. So conceivably, you get it through the board. The mayor lets it sit. It takes effect anyway. But I'm just wondering, like, how what you view is your relationship to the mayor. You would obviously be an adversary at times on ENA, could be an adversary, mm-hmm. could be cooperative there. But, you know, unless you do the whole sit on the bills and let him take it effect, you've got to have the support of the mayor to advance any kind of agenda. And not only the mayor, we also you also have to get buy-in from the comptroller at the time. Mm-hmm. I think for, I, for ENA, right. yeah. Yeah, 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 I'm yeah, talking yeah. about ENA. I know what you're talking about, Rachel, but I think that sometimes sure. gets overlooked. Yes. That Darling Green is actually an almost equal partner in all of this. And has right. at times been the um, in the catbird seat a lot. Yes. Yeah. At, and, at and, and if you look at my voting record at the board, a lot of times my voting record matches Darlene Green's voting record. Um, and so I think that there's a, a national, a natural allyship um, she's also there. a pretty savvy political operator. Though. Yes. she knows. Yes. Like, there's, there's been plenty of times you're just like, this, this is okay. Never mind. But yeah. Anyways, continue. And, and I mean, we, we have a good relationship. I think with anybody, you look for the places where you can reach consensus, um, and also recognize that if there are times that that consensus cannot be reached, and you feel like something is moving forward that is hurtful to the city, such as airport privatization, you know, then it's my job to represent the the will of the people who put me in office to you know fight like hell against those things and um, and so I think you know we have to be willing to be a little bit malleable on whatever the issue is but at the end of the day you know the agenda that I'm forwarding is the agenda that was set forth um, by people in our region in the Ferguson Commission report um, through the the for sake of all report those are things that I think it would be very politically difficult for the mayor to veto. If you could distill your candidacy and distill your message down, mm-hmm. maybe not to a soundbite, but to... <laughs> Give us an elevator pitch for <laughs> a seven-story building. Okay. Th- this would be your chance. <laughs> sure. You know, well, basically, like I said in the, the opening, I'm running because the status quo in our city isn't working. You know, we're a city right now that is known nationally for our problems. You know, whether it be our crime rates, our STD rates, our infant mortality rates that rival developing countries, uh, our high number of officer-involved shootings, all of these things are what we are known for right now. Um, and I would like us to be known for our solutions and to actually have St. Louis on the map for the right reasons. And I think that there are three things that we need to do in order for that to happen. You know, the first, obviously, we have to address public safety. Um, you can't knock on a single person's door in this city without hearing concerns about crime. And when we are a city that spends almost 60% of our budget on public safety and has the third highest staff police department per capita in the country, it's obvious that what we're doing is not working. What I'd like to see us do is add social workers to the police department and um, to implement a model called Operation Peacemaker, which is what was done in Richmond, California, and decrease their crime rates by over 60% in five years. Um, second thing we have to do that we touched on a lot today was retool our development system to make sure that we have the money to fund city services um, and to fund our schools, and that development is happening equitably across our city. And then the third thing is we have to clean up City Hall. You know, we voters overwhelmingly approved clean in uh, November, and it doesn't apply to the local level. If um, we're going to do the th- 
you know, a, a different public safety system and a different development system. It means we have to change who's funding campaigns and change who, uh, and, and change the control that, that lobbyists have down at the board. We need to get lobbyists off the floor of the board, move us toward a publicly financed campaign option so that we actually have a city that voters can trust. Well, thank you very much for your time. And we really appreciate it because we think that voters of St. Louis deserve to hear from their candidates in pretty in-depth detail. So good luck on your campaign. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Rachel on Twitter at... At our Lipman, two Ps, two Ns. And how would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? So on Twitter, it's at Megan Aaliyah, which is M-E-G-A-N-E-L-L-Y-I-A. And on Facebook, it's slash green for STL. And yeah. is it uh, for the word or for the number? For the word. Oh, <laughs> we're getting some dissension because I think that there was a for the number. Well, the last. you know, it's you just got to make sure. It's, it's, I don't know what happens when you punch in green the number for STL. Yeah, but, for, you know. for a website, both of them will get you to the same place. Gotcha. For Facebook, you had you to, to choose just it. one. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Until next time, so long.